This is Continuous Testing Live. My name is Noel Worst, and whether you are a returning guest or this is your first episode, welcome. If you are new to the program, this show is brought to you by Tricentis and is our way of interviewing who I and many others feel are some of the brightest minds and biggest contributors to software quality in our industry today. We talk about continuous testing, of course, the impact of Agile and DevOps, digital transformation, and the changes to culture that each of these and other modernization initiatives introduce to software testing teams. Today, we're sharing our conversation with Melissa Tondi. I met Melissa at Star East last year, where she gave a talk that was titled, Make the Shift to Quality Engineering. Melissa's talk dealt with one of my favorite slash least favorite topics to discuss, misconceptions around software quality that have plagued software testers for years. And I say favorite slash least favorite because while it's a topic that I'm very passionate about, erasing some of these misconceptions can be incredibly difficult. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, especially when folks like Melissa have such excellent advice for why you should do it and how it's been done before that you might want to try at your organization. This is my conversation with Melissa Tondi, and you're listening to Continuous Testing Live. So, uh, Melissa, your, your session was on making the shift to quality engineering. Uh, there was a ton of information in your session, too much to condense into a short podcast, but what's just kind of like an elevator pitch for why now's the time for testers or QAers, whatever they may call themselves, to start thinking about themselves as quality engineers? So I think... Um, you know, originally when when the um, the role of a quality engineer came about in my career um, seven, eight, nine years ago or so, um, it generally came about because we were trying to um, bust the myth and the misperceptions of what quality assurance and software testing was. And the conversation started by people asking, well, why are we changing the name of this role or the title of these people? And it really allowed us to start the conversation around, A, the misperceptions that that particular company had around the responsibilities and roles that the testers and quality assurance engineers had. Um, And it really allowed us to level set for where the responsibility and the more importantly, the value that the quality engineering team being transformed into that then would provide it to the company. So it really was an answer to dispelling the myths around it and then also to level set and then push forward this transformational change into quality engineering. Yeah, it's, a, um, it's like a productive... Uh, um, a productive title. I mean, I've heard people say it's not quality assurance, it's quality awareness. But even quality awareness, I think, still has kind of a, um, a like, well, we're aware that it's got bad quality. It doesn't show a step forward. If you can say that you're engineering quality, that's a nice thing to be able to say that you are you are leading. Um, and you told a story, talk, well, speaking around uh, or talking about engineering, you, you did tell a story about how one time when technical acumen had become more focused on than the feedback from the users. And yeah, you even said that the users had been, quote, left in the dust. Um, I was curious as to what alarms went off to alert you or, or the team that um, that something had gone amiss. Um, and then once that user feedback had been given that higher value, 
what were some of the metrics that were used to prove that, that, that things were back on the right path? At that point, we were, um, I was working for a, a company, built a, a team to, um, around mobile testing at that point, you know, uh, six, say, years ago or so, a lot of companies um, were struggling with understanding the skill sets required for um, mobile. And, you know, not that it was uh, necessarily a huge game changer, but there were some aspects of testing that mobile introduced. And so um, an interesting career move that I made was having the ability to build a team of quality engineers that focused on mobile. And with that said, um, the reason why we saw that was because companies that we were then engaged with were getting hammered in the app store by their users. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, to the point where those one-star reviews were basically distilled down into, I can't use this, or I want it to be this way. Why can't you do what you say you're going to do from the app? And that really got us thinking of, hey, did we really leave the users in the dust with our whole um, movement of emphasizing the technical acumen around the SDET, the, the SCT, the, you know, the, whatever the, the role or the flavor was. Um, and that was really our foray into that. So what we did was, you know, one of the, the best, you know, measures of feedback and, and um, success that we used was simply reducing the number of issues that customers were reporting into um, either, you know, either help desk or customer support or however they, the users were used to contacting the companies. And our main goal was to um, bridge the gap between the development team and the users. Mm -hmm. And the way that we measure that was by reducing the number of customer reported production issues that were happening. Mm -hmm. I'm writing a, uh, a a blog right now that I'm well trying to find the time to finish it, but it's this whole thing around this statement of when you call support, um, and the the recording says that the call volumes are higher than expected, and that that statement is kind of damning. I mean, it's kind of like it's you didn't expect it, you didn't know that this it's because it, it may be the kind of case where you've got bugs in production, and it's like it, that statement is admitting that you had no idea that there there was going to be all of these issues, and um, it, it's this whole thing around that concept. Mm-hmm. That that's a great measurement though, the support time. Um, you also talked about, you know, this, this mindset of continuous everything, um, kind of going into continuous testing and continuous deployment. Um, and you had on there that living this kind of a mindset of, uh, always be automating, but don't get hung up trying, trying, don't get hung up trying to automate everything. Um, in the session that we both just left, Paul Grzafi uh, talked about this as well, um, saying that, you know, you can get so hung up on getting so close to end to end or so close of a hundred percent or whatever your goal is, 80, 90%. How, how do you know when it is time to stop and assess, have we automated everything we need to, and to not um, leave something out that, that could still be given value by automation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, a few years ago, um, actually as part of that um, role that I was just talking about from the mobile standpoint, um, we created this um, measurement called A of A, and that stands for automated of automatable. And in my session, we talked about, um, you know, the, the P1 through P3 yeah. scale, kind of, you know, the, the P1s being the unit and integration tests mm-hmm. that, depending on your organization, 
generally belongs to dev, but it could could certainly belong to um, QA or QE in that capacity. And then the P2 being more aligned with critical functionality, also known as a smoke test. And then the P3 focusing on user advocacy and kind of that scale. Um, once we use that, we determine um, of the P1 tests what actually has been automated that can be automatable. And in that, and then we use that same scale for the P2 smoke test and the P3 um, advocacy test. Mm-hmm. And what we what, what I didn't discuss was then kind of the P4, which is what we lovingly call dealer's choice, which is then once we have those P1 through three suites um, executing, um, they're all passing, they're all giving everybody back the, the right information. Then we kind of move into the dealer's choice, which means that then it becomes much more customized customizable to that specific project and team of what is important to them. So with that, that A of A automated of automatable metric follows each one of those suites and we can hit a very high percentage, certainly in the 90 plus percent of that. And that is a a much more attainable goal because by defining and the, the criteria and the guidelines for what should be automated, um, then we have a much greater um, chance of hitting closer to 100% versus just arbitrarily saying all test cases or X percentage of test cases written in a more traditional test management tool should be automated as high of a percentage as possible. That way, the you know, so when you know that you're hitting in the 90 plus percentage using the A of A metric, mm-hmm. um, the team is 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 going to be considered successful. Anything below 90% then needs to be looked at um, from a, you know, from an over overarching um, understanding of what is preventing us from hitting that A of A number. So that really was a game changer with us because we did away with the number of tests or the percentage of test cases that needed to be automated. And we really elevated that quality engineer who had test automation experience and skill sets, they were able to, um, you know, both follow and influence the criteria and guidelines and be much more influential in the project team, more so than they had been. And that A of A really was that game changer on how we were able to do that. That's great. That's really good. Um, so we've been talking pretty uh, uh, technology-focused uh, conversation so far. You also mentioned in the uh, in your session about how quality engineering involves blending uh, soft skills uh, with technology and being able to 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 look at your 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 capabilities and say, not only am I an excellent technologist, but I can communicate with multiple teams. Um, so part one of the question would be, what are some of those other teams that you know modernized? forward-thinking quality engineers should expect to communicate with regularly? And then how do you go into those conversations confident that you can speak their language and, and to, to the topics that matter to them as well? I, I personally have no problem talking to, to any level at my company or here at this conference, but sometimes after the conversation, I think, oh, I wonder if they cared about any of that. Like I, I did not make any attempt to, to figure out what it was I should hit on that would, would really like, you know, make them, make them happy. Um, I'd say that it, it really, you know, I think the, as we talk about balancing those soft skills out in, in this um, day and age now where remote working, um, re, you know, offshore, onshore, 
um, you know, staggered or non-traditional working hours in work workplace, um, you know, cultures and environments. Um, we, I think, the soft skills of being able to adapt to what media forums the team is comfortable using, for example, um, to be able to convey a message via Slack or similar tool, um, via email, via video, um, and then, of course, via in-person and on the phone sometimes. Understanding that um, as much as technology, of course, um, helps us do our jobs better and ideally more efficiently and productively, it also introduces a component that we tend to not put emphasis on, which is how do you communicate um, differently when you are on a phone conference versus a video conference versus a Slack channel versus mm-hmm. one-on-one. And I think the quality engineer soft skills are really the, the, the one that's going to stand out for me is the ability to adapt to all of the um, embraced forums in which companies now choose to communicate in this ever-evolving workplace environment and yeah. culture, open workplaces, remote, all that. Um, so that's one of them. Um, and then I want to make sure that I get your second question. Will you ask that one more time? Um, the second question was, oh, how do, you, how do you work to understand that audience to know what it is that either they value or that they're being measured against, um, what the, the work they expect you to be uh, doing, um, how do you make sure that you're going to speak to them in a language um, that they understand, uh, metrics that they also value, uh, to make sure that that conversation is actually uh, effective? Um, yeah, so in um, in my session earlier, I, I kind of drew what our organization mm-hmm. looks like. And so we kind of have the <clears throat> V mentality where we start out at the, uh, you know, the, the entry-level position is an associate quality engineer, and then there's a mid-level, and then there's a senior. And from that senior quality engineer, there are two paths to move into. You may have a propensity to want to lead and man- eventually manage and eventually may- possibly be the, the head of the, the quality engineering department, which kind of goes to the left mm-hmm. on the more people uh, management side. And then to the right, there's the, the deeper technical. So we go into the architect and the principal, and in some organizations, even um, fellows that that kind of go in there with the fellow being kind of the top, um, you know, industry expert, not just look at the company, but the industry expert. And as so if you use that model, we base the job descriptions and write the job descriptions for each, starting with the, the um, associate to what levels of communication we expect them to be able to adhere to. And so obviously an associate level, entry level position, um, you know, there's not a lot of expectations, but it's clear within the job descriptions um, as you move from an associate to a mid-level to a senior, and then of course going to one of those tracks, um, that the adaptability and the ability to be able to effectively communicate um, your plan, um, how your plan actually held, mm-hmm. um, and then the differences and, and, and a summary report as you move up into the organization, those skill sets are clearer and they are greater um, in different formats, forums, and media that we expect in there. So we really use the job descriptions for not only um, sourcing 
talent from outside of the company, but we use those job descriptions to um, for promotion paths, for lateral changes within the, um, the the product development teams, and also movements from within the company. So we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the job descriptions to um, to to really detail out what types of communication we expect those roles, and they really do tend to increase the higher up within those roles that you get. Most job descriptions that I've ever you know uh, worked so hard to make sure I. Um, I don't mean gave a false impression, but gave the impression that I was uh, qualified for. Once I got the job, I, I, I don't, I never looked at that job description again. I like, I like the use of that. Um, and the last question that I had for you, one thing that, that stood out to me the most um, were the, the personal and professional traits that you recommended uh, quality engineers have or that testers have if shifting to a, the role of a quality engineer. And I'll, I'll just read these off. It was that, that, the, ter- that the tester uh, be curious, um, that they're not just asking how is this supposed to work, but what happens if I do this? Uh, kind of an old school mentality of where will this break, um, the ability to not only think like a user but to act like a user, and as well as measured progression, lateral and vertical. And I thought that these all sounded like testers are like these all sounded like traits that good sh- that good testers should maybe already have and maybe should have always had. Um, those are often things that I've heard of testers described as as having that makes them good testers. And I don't mean that as uh, these weren't new ideas for what they'll need to, to have as a quality engineer. I actually saw this as a real positive that quality engineering, from what I learned in the session today, is a, a huge shift in the way that uh, quality is looked at, treated, owned, maybe within an organization, but that it's still some of those core personality traits or, or uh, curiosity, things like that, that will still continue to give them their value. They're not having to change what type of person they are. They're just having to change maybe the organizational structure. Um, and, and the way that they collaborate. But those things that made them good at their job from day one, entry level, those things are still going to be able to help them progress at much higher levels. Totally agree. And um, I did a, a an actual kind of a, a Twitter series over the last couple of weeks where um, I blew those out. So where you mentioned, you know, four or five of those that I talked about specifically at my session earlier, um, there's about 20 uh, 21 or so that I were was individually treat, tweeting about over the last couple of weeks that kind of deep dive into that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, none of those um, traits are new, and they certainly shouldn't be for anyone that's good at their job. And and I would even say that those traits are um, even transferable outside of of the test quality assurance quality engineering industry those are traits that um, you know especially the curious I would say that any job anyone that's successful in their job regardless of what that job is or role is um, should be curious and they should not and, and you know I, I tended to put a little emphasis on the differences between explicit information which you know as I mentioned was you know stuff that's readily available and in certainly documented if it's documented or if it's centralized um, in the form of user stories, requirements, acceptance criteria, all of the information that goes into building out um, the, the initial um, thought process and roadmap of, of product and software development, um, that's explicit information. And that stuff, quite honestly, it's the easy stuff for yeah. us to know. It's the implicit information um, that really sets apart the quality engineer because they not only know where and how to gather that explicit information and to sometimes insert themselves when that explicit information is given via conversations like stand-ups or even hallway conversations, it's more important to gather the implicit information and 
as you, again, going back to the, you know, associate to mid-level to senior quality engineer job descriptions, the ability to um, gather that implicit information becomes more important and more um, defined as being a, 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 a a huge responsibility within that role. So I think that is really um, what we're striving for, the explicit versus implicit information gathering. So, um, you know, it's certainly um, encourage if, if you're not a follower of mine to look through some of the tweets that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, because it actually expands those traits of a quality engineer as well. I want to give a big thank you to Melissa Tandy for taking the time to sit down to record an episode of this show and for her patience waiting for us to publish it. Thank you, Melissa. If you enjoyed this program, or if you've enjoyed any of our other episodes, subscribe to the show and you won't miss a single future episode. Subscribing is easy. You can do so at iTunes, the Google Play Store, or SoundCloud just by searching for Continuous Testing Live. That's going to wrap up this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it, and even more so that you come back to listen again. And if there's ever anyone that you'd love for us to try and get on this show, just let me know. You can reach out to me on Twitter, at Noel Wurst, N-O-E-L-W-U-R-S-T. We'll see you next time on Continuous Testing Live. <laughs>